We are going to look at the Bible together. This is what we do as a church. And we've been going through a, a book called Acts. And the book of Acts is all about the early church. And so if you have questions about how did this whole church thing get started, what did it look like, uh, that book of Acts is the place to go. And so we've been working through this book for a number of weeks now. And this morning we're going to find ourselves in chapter 6. And as we've come to this point in the, the book of Acts, some things that we've learned about the early church is, first of all, why did the early church start? It was because of a historical event. And what was that historical event? The, the resurrection of Jesus. We as the church believe that the resurrection of Jesus absolutely changes history, that Jesus is God, and now we as people are called to follow uh, Jesus and live um, the way that God wants us to live. And so Jesus, after his resurrection, he sent out a movement, uh, sent out a movement called the church. And this church is, is waiting for God to move and that he's sending them to be as Acts 1.8 tells us as what to the world? What is the church supposed to be to the world? Witnesses. In other words, the, the church is supposed to witness to the beauty of who God is and what God has done. And so this is what we see starting in the city of Jerusalem um, to the ends of the earth. The good news of Jesus Christ is getting spread all over the earth. And this is exactly what we witness today. Uh, Christianity is a global movement. It's a movement that goes beyond uh, the borders of nations and spreads across the world. Now, with that movement we realized that there became challenges to that movement, right? There were people who were receptive to the teachings of Jesus and to acknowledge that Jesus is God. But at the same time, there were people that were antagonistic to it, people that were against the good news of Jesus. And we experience the same thing in our culture today, don't we? I mean, if you come to an atheist and you say, atheist, there is a God and you are accountable to him, does any atheist want to hear that? No, I want to do what I want to do. I want to live the way that I want to live. I don't want anyone to have authority over me. If you, if you come to a Muslim and you say, no, Jesus actually did die on the cross. He didn't just go up to heaven. And he did raise from the dead. And he is God. Is that going to offend a Muslim? 100%. If you go to a Jew and you say, no, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the way of eternal life. Is that going to cause offense? It is, and so we, we live in a culture and a world where we talked about this more last week, but uh, Christianity makes very specific claims about who God is and what he has done in the personal work of Jesus. And what has that brought at many times and points of history is opposition. And so what we're going to look at this morning is a story of major opposition. We're going to look at a story of a man named Stephen, uh, a man who was what we call a, a martyr of the faith, uh, of faith, one of the first martyrs of the faith. And his story is going to remind us of how drastic the call to follow Jesus can actually be and how intense it can actually be. And so we are looking at Acts chapter 6, the story of Stephen, and it's the story of martyrdom. And so when we think of the word martyr, what type of, of thing are we thinking about? We, we use this word martyr in today's context to refer to primarily to what? What do we think of when we think of a martyr? 
Yeah, someone who's persecuted to what extent? To death, right? Someone who dies, literally their life has ended because of what they believe. And, and this word is the word martyr that began to be used in the early church as it was functioning in the Greco-Roman world and the Greeks and the Romans were just persecuting and killing off Christians. And so originally its term was a little more broad than that. And originally the term martyr comes from Acts 1.8, which is the calling of the church to be witnesses. And so the literal meaning of, of martyr is actually witness, witness to the gospel. Now, who here is called to be a witness to the gospel? Everyone who follows Jesus, everyone who is faithful to the mission that God has given us. And so last month, we, we hosted a guy named Greg Musselman and an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. And we had a mission seminar which talked a lot about what is going on in the global church and uh, many people who are experiencing uh, martyrdom, uh, persecution for their belief in Christianity. And, and even a 2015 study uh, done by Gordon Conwell Seminary, they concluded that there's around 100,000 people a year, 100,000 Christians who die for their faith globally. Just think of that number. Like how many people live in this region? Maybe 5,000 in the surrounding area. Think about this entire era, even Spruce Grove and Stony Plain getting wiped out every year because of their Christian faith. And, and these are numbers that aren't even astronomical, but these are numbers that are simply based on studies that have been done, people that have died for their faith. And so we think about the church today, there is a deep, reality of a martyr being willing to die for their faith. And uh, I was reading uh, a French theologian a little while, Theodore Beza. Um, who here has heard of John Calvin before? John Calvin's sort of a famous theologian. Uh, Beza was sort of the, the, the mentoree of John Calvin. He sort of comes from that tradition. And he says something that really stood out in my mind. He said, it belongs to the church of God to receive what? To receive blows. In other words, we're going to face hardship. We're going to face persecution. We're going to face things that harm us. And it says, it's the church of God to receive blows rather than to do what? Rather than to inflict them, rather than to be people of injustice and evil. It says, but she, referring to the church, is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Isn't that a beautiful image? And what we see throughout the history of the church is, is there's been nations and there's been groups and there's been societies that have been actively involved in harm, bringing harm and hardship and persecution to the church. And, and this is what we realize that is banging over and over again against the church and yet, what? Who's ultimately losing in the end? The hammer, so to say. <laughs> and, and so this is something that reminds us that, you know what? There's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficulty. But the reason that we can be sustained as a church in the midst of hardship and suffering is why? Because of God. Because he gives us the strength and endurance to endure. And so we, we come to this question then. Of, of what is a martyr? What does a martyr look like? How does it function? What does it mean to be a witness 
of Jesus. And, and historically, there's, there's been a few different avenues to define what a martyr is. One of the earliest comes from uh, Pope Gregory. Pope Gregory I, this is sort of who the reformers call the last great pope. As we many know, many in the Catholic tradition, there's not many great popes since. And he brought up three categories of how to define martyrdom. And he brought it through these three colors. And the three colors are red. Does anyone remember from Greg Musselman, Voice of the Mars? Red, green, and white, right? And a, a red martyr, as you can guess from the color, is someone who what? Who dies for their faith who their witness to the gospel leads to their death. Then the other category is this, this green martyr. And this green martyr is someone who lives in self-denial, um, someone who dies to self, so to say. Now, when we talk about following Jesus, we talk a lot about dying to ourself. Why? Because we, when we do what we want to do and we, we live the way that we want to live, it often makes a disaster, doesn't it? So we need to die to ourself. We need to die to our own wills. We need to live for the will of God. That's what a green martyr is. And then there's a white martyr who is this imagery of dying to the world. And so you're, you're dying to the world in the sense that all the cultural pressures and all the sins and temptations of the world that come upon you, you die to them, you flee to them. And so these are historically some of the defining ways that martyrs have been understood throughout church history. Now, the, the question we need to process then in light of this, before we even get to the story, is, is not just the question then of being a martyr, a witness of, am I willing to die for Jesus? That's a pretty heavy question. Am I willing to die for Jesus? And, and for many of us, that's a hypothetical question in our Canadian context, not for all of us. But the harder question is, am I willing to live my life as a witness to Jesus, as a martyr? Because often what's more difficult? Living it out, right? Uh, I've been fascinated in the last couple of years. We've had a number of people in the church and outside the church, even my own father, who went through seasons of realizing that death was imminent before them whether it's cancer, whether it was disease, whether whatever it may be. And, and a, a lot of the people I talked to as they processed this is they, they came to a realization, they said, you know what, I'm going to die. And, and I know what's coming next. I trust in Jesus and his resurrection. I, I know that I'm going to be in the presence of God. And so death isn't a fear to me. I'm ready to step beyond that. Now, some of those people were, were healed after a while, and so now what's the question they got to face? How do I live now? And they said that was a much harder question to answer. It, it, was, it was easy to process how I'm going to die, but a much harder thing to process was how am I actually going to live now? And, and for us who are followers of Jesus, this is a very difficult thing for us to process because you know what? A witness isn't just being willing to die for your faith as a martyr. The, the harder part of being a witness is what am I willing to give up for the sake of the mission of Jesus Christ? What am I willing to give up to follow Jesus? And so really, this is part of the questioning we're going to be examining this morning. 
And so the, the story that we come to with Stephen this, today is a story of red martyrdom. And, and I'm going to get you guys to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verses 8. And this is the story we're going to read. Now, I'm going to read through this story. There's, there's quite a long uh, explanation, and uh, Stephen has a whole sermon in here. I'm just going to walk us through it to get an understanding of what's going on here. And so let's look at verse 8 together, and then I'll take breaks along the way. And so, and Stephen, uh, Stephen was a person who was basically just appointed as a servant, as a deacon, to help the apostles deal with some stuff. And this is where he finds himself. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So what's all the wonders and signs he's doing? Well, he's doing tons of evangelization. And so as he's serving tables and interacting with people, he's bringing all these Jews to faith. And so all these things um, are causing concern by a lot of the leadership of the city because all these people are becoming followers of Jesus. And it says, verse 9, then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the free man, as it was called, these probably Jews who came out of slavery, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which with he was speaking. And again, this is a fulfillment of the, pro uh, the promise of Jesus Christ. He says, when you don't know what to say and when you don't know what to do, who's going to help you? The Holy Spirit, right? And we see this actively involved in the life of Stephen, the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Then they secretly investigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak word against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so what are they saying? They, they bring all these accusations against Stephen. And, and what are they saying that Stephen is making the declaration of? That the temple and the law are going to be destroyed by Jesus. Now, they use that as an accusation in a literal sense, but actually, is it true? Does Jesus come and necessarily destroy the temple and the law? In many senses, it's, it's not true literally, but metaphorically it is. Because who does Jesus become in fulfillment of the Old Testament story? Jesus becomes what? The temple. He becomes the law. Everything has changed now. And so in gazing at him, all sat in the council, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In other words, they realized that he was innocent. In chapter 7, and so where do we go on from here? And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, now here's where we're going to jump into an entire sermon of Stephen. And this is his massive defense against those things. And what Stephen's going to begin doing is basically explaining Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. That the entire story of history is wrapped up around Jesus. That everything 
points to Jesus. And so he says this. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offsprings after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them a covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And so who's this story all about? This is the story of Abraham, is it not? And so why would Stephen be bringing up Abraham? Well, what's he trying to point out? He's trying to point out that Jesus is the fulfillment of the blessing that was promised to the nations of the earth through Abraham. When we look at the story of Abraham in Scripture, who is Abraham supposed to be? The father of many nations, right? And all the nations through him would be blessed. Now, did that happen? No. And and so Stephen is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of this story. Jesus is the person who will bless all nations with the gospel. Jesus is the greater Abraham. And so this is the narrative that he's bringing out. So what's next? Verse 9. And it says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. So whose story we're talking about now? Joseph, right? Joseph sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was no grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Sechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamer and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt slowly with his race. Now, Here's a fascinating thing in this story. Who is the story dealing with next? With uh, Joseph, right? Oh, there we go. Now, think about the story of Joseph. What happens to Joseph? What do his brothers do? They sell him into slavery, right? 
Fascinating enough, what happens with Jesus at his betrayal? He gets sold, right, by Judas, his betrayer. And, and so we see this rejection and betrayal in the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus, yet at the same time, what do we see in Joseph? Even though he was treated unjustly, even though all these things happen against him, where do we see Joseph at the end of the story? What position is he in? He's functioning as leadership. He's functioning in authority. He's functioning also as savior who protected the people from famine. And, and so the, the point being brought out here by Stephen is, you know what, just as you rejected, uh, Joseph was rejected, he ultimately brought about salvation to the family. And even though you rejected Jesus, guess what he is doing? He is bringing out salvation to the world. That is what he's bringing up. So let's keep going then. Verse 17 here, or I'll jump a little further to, to verse probably 20. And it says, at this time, Moses was born. So who are we talking about now? Moses. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deed. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush, which represented the presence of God. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent both as a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up for a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, 
saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us, and this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And then they end up making a bunch of idols of golden calves. And so what's this story telling us? Let's look at the story of Moses together. Well, Moses' story is in the context of what story? What's the story of the Israelites in the context of Moses? What's it called? The Exodus, right? And what we see in the story of Exodus is we see the people of God in slavery, sold into slavery in Egypt. And who becomes their rescuer? God ultimately, but Moses is the one who leads them out. And so Stephen is saying, just like the story of the Exodus, we see Moses who is rejected by the people of God, and yet God sent Moses specifically to rescue them from slavery. And so what Stephen is saying is just as Moses was rejected, and yet he brought salvation, Jesus is that same person, yet for all of the world. And so Jesus brings salvation from slavery for everyone, slavery from sin. And so this is the the narrative that Stephen is speaking. He's going through this entire story of the Old Testament, and what he is saying over and over again is this is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. All of history is pointing to Jesus. In other words, the story of Abraham is about Jesus. The patriarchs are about Jesus. The story of Israel is about Jesus. The Exodus is about Jesus. Moses is about Jesus. Joseph is about Jesus. The kings are about Jesus. The temple is about Jesus. The law is about Jesus. This is Stephen's sermon. Basically saying that everything, all of your history is wrapped up in Jesus. And yet, what did the people do? This is what he says next. And this is where it gets a little offensive what Stephen is saying. He's saying, it's all about Jesus, but what? But you, what kind of people? Stiff-necked people. Now, who has ever ridden a stiff-necked horse? (laughs) Can you go where you want? Do you get where you want? No, these are people who are stubborn. These are people who are caught up in their own way. These are people who will not listen when God speaks. He says, you stiff-necked people. Then he says, you are uncircumcised in heart and ears. And the way of saying that is, you put on these, all this external religious duty and you aren't even willing to listen to God. You want to practice religion in your own life, but you don't actually hear from God to transform you. And he says, you resist the Holy Spirit, which is another way of saying you resist listening to God. Now, this is where he ties it into everything he's been preaching about. He says, you are stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and hardened ears. As your fathers did, so do you. And what they're saying is, is just as all the forefathers of Israel rejected the story of Abraham and Moses and Joseph and all the purposes of God throughout it all, he's saying you today are doing the exact same thing when you reject God. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Who are the, pro- who are the prophets? What was their purpose? 
They were supposed to speak the word of God to the people of Israel. And was it a good job description to be a prophet? No. Prophets got marginalized. They got persecuted. They, they got harmed. They weren't listened to, right? And he said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? In other words, you guys never listened to God. And he says, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Jesus. They killed everyone who talked about the coming of Jesus and how he would be the savior of the world, how he would be the Messiah. And not only that, this Jesus, the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. It's not a very good strategic sermon to welcome people, eh? (laughs) But this is Stephen's sermon. It was his last sermon that he ever preached. Why is it his last sermon? Because they did not respond well at all to this message. They, They realized what he was saying. And they realized that what Stephen was telling them and accusing them of is that you guys have murdered God himself. It's pretty offensive, isn't it? And so what do we see next? This is where the story gets pretty wild. This is where this discussion of martyr comes around. Verse 54 then says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. It's almost this imagery. Have you guys ever been before like a wild dog or a wolf before and they're grinding their teeth? They're ready to attack, right? They're ready to devour. This is what's coming upon Stephen. But it says, 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now think of this circumstance right now. Stephen is standing before a council, a council that has absolutely just went insane, ready to murder him, ready to destroy him, ready to devour him. Now, if you're standing there, what would be your response? Probably run away, right? Probably get out of there. Probably, I don't know, throw some blows and try and fight off as many as you could. But here's Stephen's response and probably one of the most dangerous, threatening moments of his life. Where does he look? He looks up. And it's this perspective that Stephen had that, you know what, we can be overwhelmed and absolutely encapsulated by things going on around us, but Stephen says, you know what's most important at this moment? The presence of God and what God has planned for me. And he looks up to heaven and what's fascinating, what we, see, what we see in this description of Jesus, usually when we talk about Jesus in the New Testament, what is he doing beside the Father? He's usually sitting, right? And, and it's this imagery that Christ has accomplished his work of salvation, and now he's sitting with the Father. Now that he's went through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, he returns to the Father. His work is complete for salvation. And yet in this picture, what is Jesus doing? 
He's standing. And there's, there's questions of why Jesus is standing, but I, but I think one of the, the major reasons that Jesus is standing here is because he has just witnessed himself what Stephen has done. And Stephen has walked to the point of his life where he's willing to be martyred for his belief in Jesus, and I think this is almost a picture of Jesus sort of standing up and giving an applause. And, and standing up and waiting to welcome Stephen into his presence. And it's this beautiful description of the, the welcoming nature and the encouraging nature of what God has done. And so as Stephen is experiencing this, and as he's continuing his witness of who Jesus is, it says in verse 57, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Now this is sort of a a picture, I don't know, for those of us who have toddlers, right? And when toddlers don't want to be told what to do, what do they do? They close their ears and they begin screaming. Why? Because then you cannot communicate at all. Then they can't hear what you're telling them to do then they drowned out all the noise of you trying to speak and they just run around like that. And and this is what we see this wild mob doing right now is they are so caught up in not hearing what Stephen has to say. They are so offended by what Stephen is preaching about Jesus that they literally become like little children in their enraged minds and are closing their ears and screaming so they will hear nothing else, right? Right? That's the image we have here. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so what do we see? They see Stephen dragged out of the city and killed. Now, I see this beautiful parallel as well with the story of Jesus. What happens to Jesus? He's drug out of the city and he's killed. Now, what I find absolutely fascinating as well in this passage is that we see these witnesses laying down their garments and what they are doing is taking off their garments and it's almost like this imagery of a pitcher who's taking off his jacket and getting ready to throw a baseball, right? Right? If you throw a baseball with a jacket on, you're not going to have much power. And so what are they doing? They're literally preparing themselves to stone Stephen. And where do they lay their garments down? At the feet of Saul. Isn't this interesting? Here we have a guy named Saul. We, we know him as the New Testament author of Paul, right? Same guy. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, didn't he? Paul wrote so much about Christianity in the early church. But what we need to remember is is Paul, as this young man named Saul, was a persecutor of the church. And he's standing before witness. Saul was not yet a Christian at this point. He had not committed his life to following Jesus. He was still very much a religious Jewish person And he's watching this martyrdom take place. Do you think that would have had an effect on him? 
I think it has a profound effect on him. And, and I, I think we, we need to realize the profound nature of what God can do through martyrdom. And so what do we see next? We see Stephen then in this, this tone. And he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit. And what does he say next? He says, fall to his knees and with a loud voice, Lord, don't what? Don't hold the sin against them. Again, what do we see in the life of Jesus? On the cross, he's crying to the Father, Lord, Father, receive my spirit. Forgive these people for they don't know what they're doing. What do we see in Stephen? The exact same prayer. In other words, he is a very witness to the gospel down to the very words of Jesus. Absolutely beautiful. And when he said this, what happens? He falls asleep. Why use that language? Why not death? Why? Because the gospel writers, Luke and writing this, know that is this the final day of Stephen's life? No. There's a promise of resurrection. Death has no sting over him. This isn't eradication from existence. No, this is moving on to the next stage of existence in a resurrected life. That's why Stephen could face his death with such boldness, why he could face his martyrdom with such courage because he knew the gospel. And so to close this conversation, and we're gonna, we're gonna bring up a couple to share a lot more about what this looks like in their life as well and update us a little bit. But I want us to ponder this question. What is your calling of of martyrdom? What is your calling of being a witness? Now, now many of us are are not going to experience the the martyrdom that Stephen faced. Um, I have a very firm belief I believe that before I die, we will see red martyrdom in Canada. 100% believe that. But again, the, the question of the calling of martyrdom is it's, it's a much harder question to ask of how do I live now? How do I live in this world, in this experience now? And, and something that I want us to realize as we answer this question is when we look at the life of Stephen, we see a very ordinary person. Here was a man who wasn't the apostles, he wasn't involved necessarily in the the devotion of the word and the preaching and the prayers uh, that the apostles were. He was literally a man who was serving tables. He was literally what we could define almost as a waiter, so to say. He lived very ordinary life in that sense, and yet we see God do something absolutely extraordinary through his life, amen? We see his boldness and witness changing the life of one of the most uh, antagonistic people against the church in Paul, becoming the very first martyr of the faith. And so I want you to comprehend your life, and many of you may think of it's just ordinary, that I'm just going through the life through the motions, nothing crazy supernatural is happening, nothing's going on that would blow any people's minds. That was very much Stephen's life up to this point. And God used him to absolutely change history. Why? Because he was a faithful witness to the gospel far before this moment came. 
And this moment was simply um, a climax to his story of being a witness. And so I don't know what you need to ponder, what you need to do to wrestle with, but each of us have this call to witnessing to the gospel. Now, for those of you in community groups, and we hope everyone will get involved in a community group, this is something that you guys are going to wrestle with in the questions that you ponder this week. I hope many of us do this as well.